Today for you, I will be reading and also preaching uh, chapter 24 of the book of Acts, um, and we will read the entirety of it as we begin. Hear now the very word of God. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. We have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had noted to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it has not been 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always make pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing, that I cried out, while standing among them. It is with the respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present, when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these accounts. We thank you for teaching us about the nature of the adversary. We thank you for teaching us about the nature of your servants. Help us to understand this contrast and to have great hope and to apply this hope in our day today. As the adversary is very active, but your son is reigning forevermore. Help us, Father, to understand the nature of our callings as we present the Gospels before ourselves and each other and our homes and our families and our friends and in our communities and to politicians and people throughout the world. Help us to stand fast with the great hope, as Paul has shown, reflecting the hope and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to make a quick pronunciation correction. It is tribune, not tribune. I always say that, and Jennifer always corrects me when I read that at home. And I even looked over at her to see if she would wink at me, but she did not. It was very kind of her to, to not interrupt me. So it is tribune, not tribune. George Orwell said that political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectful, excuse me, respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. This particular passage, along with many others already and probably throughout the rest of this book, really reeks of political pandering. When we read this, it's hard. I sometimes get after Jennifer when she uses a caricature voice of the bad guy to overly emphasize it. And it's hard not to want to do the same thing in this too because sometimes the, the um, way that you present certain words can you know, make it sound silly. It's kind of like when you see a cartoon or something and the bad guy is always really dumb sounding. And, and this particular guy here, Tertullius, he was a chief orator. He was a lawyer, but they didn't really have lawyers like we consider today, but he was one who was well-versed and understood seasoned and being able to be an orator. And so I'm sure he sounded good. And if you think about some of the politicians today, even those ones who sound good can not make any sense. But what you begin to understand is that what they're saying is slimy and full of deceit and full of vile. Here we have, I would say, probably a very similar situation and that even though we know that what he is saying is true and pandering, he would have been in a very polished presentation. And it's important for us to see here that when we see these particular passages that they are laid out for us, one, to think about how things were done there in the birth of the church but how they were similar to the very trial of Jesus Christ, but how those same characteristics are even continuing today. So here we should be reminded of our Savior in the trial that he had for his crucifixion, and it should remind us of the great hope of him. 
We should see here that the nature of the mission of the church continues by reflecting that same nature, maybe even in a more extended way than what we see in the Gospels with the presentation of the crucifixion. For 2,000 years, this has been the nature of the church. It could be that you look at this particular chapter in this book and you go, this is starting to get kind of old. (laughs) We're just doing the same thing over and over again. In R.C. Sproul's commentary, he said, yeah, there's the temptation to say we're getting kind of tired of this and that it would, you know, it's a challenge for me to say, well, you know, I'm going to have to preach this and you all are going to have to hear this again. But in the providence of God, he wants us to continue to hear this. It wouldn't be here. Not just because Luke may have liked to give these accounts. It would not be here if it was not for the purpose of God's provision for us to have the proclamation of Jesus Christ repeated in our mind. And I think it's something that we may really need today to see over and over again because we have kind of a template of what we would think that our Christian life may be like, that we here in America, we have an idea of what success would be when it comes to church ministry. I mentioned earlier that I had lunch with Aaron Rayburn, um, a friend of mine who's been a pastor for many years, and we were dissecting down what is it to be a faithful church in any day, but particularly in this day. What kind of, how do we measure where God is bringing fruit into the church? And it's a very hard temptation not to want to adopt models that are out there that seem to be bursting at the seams in so many ways of fruitfulness. But it's interesting that in the providence of the Lord, many of the things that my friend Aaron has had before him in ministry is to go into big, busting out of the seams churches and to try to bring them back to the word of God. That they are just a complete mess. And whenever you are a big church in your mess, you're a, a bigger mess. And so it is important for us not to adopt what the world would want to teach us, what Satan wanted to deceive us with on thinking what is success when the Bible here has shown us that the foundation of the church has been established, the foundation of Christendom, the foundation of the kingdom of God has been often through this kind of scenario where there is strife, where there is suffering, where there's clearly lies and confusion and deception. So as we continue to smell this stench of political pandering, it is for our good for us to go into this again and to not so much warn you, but to encourage you that God will not stop there just in chapter 24 on teaching us these things. It will continue on even to the end of this book. And so may it be that we would have the right lenses of looking at these particular passages and that we would actually find hope and encouragement in Christ by doing so. So let's look at some of these particular characteristics and distinctions of what is obvious to be the work of the adversary, to be work of Satan, to be the work of demons and the devil here. If you remember in my earlier sermons about this particular string of passages, that one of the responses that we'll see in the faithful 
proclamation of the gospel is lies and confusion. And we see here with Tertullius that he is perfecting the oration of those very lies. We see here that the accuser, which is what Satan, the name Satan means, the devil, which is, again, paralleling that adversarial accuser, opposer posture, is being played out here in this Jewish Tertullius, this orator, this lawyer, for who is supposed to be God's people. But if we look deeply here, we can see in what he is saying parallels the old, old story of what Satan has always been. Jesus defined the devil as a liar and a murderer. Here he says in John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of the father the devil, speaking of the Pharisees, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you will not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you, why do you not believe me? Who is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because... You are of, not of God. The battle is going to be played out in truth versus lies. Jesus defines that the primary work of the devil, the very primary work of Satan is to be a murderer and a liar. And just like George Orwell said, is that political language is designed to make lies out of truth, excuse me, to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. Even George Orwell saw that often in politics, this is the nature of politics, lies and destruction. And so it could be that we could be overwhelmed and become weary of this constant reminder of the reality of what is going on, or we could become very keen at the very distinctions between what is of the kingdom of God in what is of the character of Satan. Satan seeks to deceive and destroy. But God's purpose for him is to glorify Jesus Christ. Even now, during the deception and the attempts of destruction, God is going to receive glory. And we know this because of what Paul said to the church in Colossae, And in chapter 1 of Colossians, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." What that is saying there is that all of these things in heaven and earth, everything that is going on then and going on now, 
is for the preeminence and the glory of Jesus Christ. That means everything that you see coming out of the news or in social media or the things that are going on in our city hall or down across from our casino where babies are being murdered today, that the ultimate plan in that is to eventually, because of that display of even the wickedness and the deception, is to highlight the glory of Christ by the way of bringing peace through his cross. Now, he's not saying that we should celebrate those kind of things and do those things so that God can be glorified. But it is, as it says in Colossians chapter 2, it is so that they would be put to open shame. See, it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There is a way that God is doing things that is ultimately, when those kind of things happen, and just like what's going on in here in Acts, is to put them in open shame. When we read what Tertullius says, we think he sounds stupid. We think he's a deceiver. We see very vividly the wickedness of Satan. We need to see those things very vividly and repetitively because Satan is very actively at work in deceiving us today. And we need to get very clear-minded in understanding the characteristics of the deceiver so that we will not be deceived. Because he has two goals. One, it is to harden those who are to be hardened and to be in unbelief and to bring suffering to those who are his. But in the same manner, he is actually an instrument of God bringing about his victorious reign. And we keep seeing reminded in these passages, and we see that the victory came by way of what? You can answer. What was the way of victory? The cross. It was the cross, and it was the resurrection from that death that we have hope. But it was the way of the cross. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For us to be his disciple, we must also bear this cross. And so we must also go through a image of that same work that happened on the cross. We must face the adversary. We must face Satan in that deception. So it's important for us to understand who he is, but to also understand in hopefulness that for those who who are steadfast in truth, Satan will be put to open shame. So God has chosen us to give these accounts here at the end of Acts, what seems to be over and over again for a purpose, to highlight the nature of the kingdom of God, to highlight the character and the calling of the servants and the citizens of the kingdom. These are provisional politics, as I had, or providential politics, and provisional in the sense that it teaches us and it helps us, and it also glorifies Christ by having these things put before us. So let's look at the M.O. here of these adversaries. We see that Tertullius is just dripping full of what 
Some call capitatio bevenilente, which means winning of goodwill. You can almost look at it as this um, trying to win over by this pandering words. And it was a type of oration skill that was actually studied by the Romans that you would introduce yourself with this very flowery presentation of uplifting the person that you're speaking to and coming in at humility. It's almost like using words to show yourself kneeled before their greatness. It was something they actually practice. And he starts out with saying, we enjoy much peace. He attributes his rule, Felix's rule of bringing great peace, saying that your foresight, which actually the Hebrew word would be better interpreted as, I mean, excuse me, the Greek word would be better interpreted as providence, that your foresight, your wisdom, your goodness, your provision for us has been what brought this great peace. And then he calls him most excellent. And then he says, and he really is going over the top when he says, in every way and everywhere, we accept this, this rule of his with great with gratitude. And then appealing to his kindness. Historians say that Felix was the reason why here later on that he is recalled. They recalled Felix because that he was considered maybe by Nero as even being too cruel. That's a pretty bad thing when Nero thinks you're a bad dude. Felix was not of one of a reputation historically of being one who brought great peace and goodness and that the Jews particularly saw with great gratitude. We see in this introduction, this Capitatio Benevolente, a bunch of lies already just in how he has presented himself. And it seems from the passage that Felix, he is aware of how they do things here. He is keen to the fact that if this is where you start your introduction with this bunch of bull, then probably everything else you're saying is not true. The Roman historian Tacticus states that Felix and the Romans were perceived as those who brought desert and called it peace. That this whole contrived idea of peace was nothing but empty words. Again, this solidity to air when there's nothing there. What we see that Tertullius is doing here, he is giving gratitude and and granting to Felix something that does not belong to Felix. He is giving this type of praise to a man when any kind of praise belongs to God. The first thing that he does in accusation is to call Paul a plague, a disease to society. And I think it's important for us to highlight this fact, this terminology of plague. Just put a note beside that. We'll go through the other three accusations. He says that Paul is stirring up riots, when in actuality, it's the adversary that's creating riots and confusion. Here we see Tertullius playing the victim card, that Paul is bringing this disarray and lack of peace in their society. This Again, we understand his definition of peace. 
He does accuse him of being the ringleader of the Nazarenes, and here he's actually telling the truth. He is of the group that they call Nazarenes. They use that terminology as a negative term, though, because nothing good comes from Nazareth. And so those who followed Jesus, who was from Nazareth, were considered Nazarenes. It was supposed to be a a negative terminology, and we see in Paul's argument that he does admit that he is a part of the sect that is also called the Way. He does not deny that particular accusation. And thirdly, he says he profaned the temple, but they came in and they kept it from having. If you notice, what was earlier on, the earlier accusation? That he did profane the temple. That he did bring in the Gentiles. Well, that was starting to lose traction. So by the time that they get to Felix, they said he almost profaned the temple. He had intent. It was his intention to bring that Gentile into the temple because I think that the argument was already starting to lose. This whole idea of taking the profaning the temple, that's something that Paul is actually has a very clear understanding and actually a faithful respect toward, they're saying that he is going against it. And think about that. That particular characteristic alone is a common characteristic of those deceivers and the deceivers of today. Just look at the news today. You hear, especially concerning the abortion issue, they're saying that these pro-lifers are trying to take away the rights of women. So think about it here. Where do rights come from? Well, rights are inalienable. There is no such thing as a right to murder a child. But they use the terminology, something that we cherish and that our forefathers of this nation say that we have these inalienable rights, these God-given rights, something that supersedes our own ideas. They are attributing it to something that is full of vileness. And so they are actually accusing the ones who are upholding faithfulness to rights, those who would want to cherish the right to life. And they're saying, these people are taking away rights. That they're wanting to harm women and children. See how they flip it around. That the harm actually goes there. And that even that anyone who believes in these things have oppressive views. What can be more oppressive than to kill a child inside of their mother's womb? The same kind of thing here when they accuse him of profaning the temple. And Paul is thinking of the great strides he's taken to not profane the temple. That is actually the temple has a purpose in highlighting Christ and his church. And he is there to proclaim the preeminence of what the temple is all about. But let's look a little deeper in this terminology, the plague. It's something that we need to realize that Satan doesn't have any new tricks. He just uses new ways of getting those old lies out there. Atheist and well-known anti-creationist Richard Dawkins stated, Let me explain why. When it comes to children, I think of religion as a dangerous virus. It is a virus which is transmitted partly through teachers and clergy, but also down the generations from parent to child to grandchild, children are especially vulnerable to infection by the virus of religion. 
The same kind of terminology that here Paul is proclaiming Christ, that Richard Dawkins here in our generation is saying that when the Christ is being proclaimed, especially to children, to children, which look at that terminology going all the way back to the second commandment, that God will bring forth his blessings to a thousand of generations of those who love me. Here, Richard Dawkins says it is a dangerous virus. Atheist Gillian Becker, an author and a contributor to newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and Telegraph in the United Kingdom, says, has anything caused as much human suffering as religion? You might say disease. But religion itself is a disease of the human race and of individual minds. Persecution, war, torture, terror, bodily pain, mental anguish, profound misery, wasted lives are all the chief products of religion. Atheist Del Rey wrote something similar in saying the best defense against the God viruses, especially the fundamentalist variants, is science education. The more science is taught or discussed, the fewer tools a God virus has to infect populations. An atheist Lawrence Krauss of Arizona State University hinted that children who are taught from the Bible shouldn't be allowed to be home educated by their parents. It is the posture of those who hate God to use words like the plague. Here he begins by calling Paul a plague. And you will hear that. And I've heard that same kind of terminology by those right down on West State Street when they were killing children on West State. That you people are a disease. That the things that you believe are like a virus. And it, it was actually encouraging to hear those words. I'm like, that sounds very familiar, <laughs> That's coming directly from Satan. And that should encourage us that when we actually get that kind of accusation thrown our way, we can go, bingo, I know where that comes from. When we see them trying to invert what is good and say that is bad and celebrate what is bad by calling it good, it's a very clear distinction. And even Felix, you can sense it. It doesn't specifically say it, but it's... Even Paul is saying, but knowing that you've been ruling for a long time, I cheerfully come before you like, you know what these people are like. You know that they are full of lies and deception. That it's easy for him to come and know that it's not hard to make a reasonable argument against that one. So, but I want us to now look at the positive element of how Paul, here in his defense, though he is using the argument, he is opposing the argument that is presented to him by saying that, there, that he is one who is against the temple, that he's the one who is against the law, that he is against God's um, uh, truth, that here are the ways that Paul defends that, but it's also an outline for us of what our presentation should be as we are those who are missionaries of the gospel today. First of all, Paul embraces that he is of the way. Here, Basically, I broke it down to seven things that Paul is arguing here. Three W's and, and three T's, and then 
the umbrella over it all. He's One, he proclaims that, yes, I am of the way. I do worship God of our fathers, and I do believe and hold to the word of God. So way, worship, and word. You also notice his temperament and his striving to maintain a faithful temperament. We also see his tithe that he is giving and he is supporting the people of God. And we see this as a parallel to what goes on in Acts chapter 2. And then he upholds the teaching and he even respects traditional teaching for the respect of the temple. But he's focusing primarily on the teaching of the law and the prophets. So we have way, worship, and word, temperament, tithe, and teaching. And then what do you think his number one focus is that is the umbrella over all of this ministry that he's willing to acknowledge and confess that he is guilty of? It's in the passage. A hope in God based upon resurrection. Now there's something here that we see this is an outline in how he presents things, but we see it summarized later on that when Felix and his wife are with him, it says that, that Luke highlights three things when it comes to the faith in Jesus Christ that he reasoned with them concerning three things. He reasoned with them concerning righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Now it says that when he was reasoning with Felix about these things, it caused Felix to have a great, he was greatly disturbed by it. But this, what I want to highlight here is what Paul is doing when he is presenting the argument before Felix in front of everyone, that when he's talking about the resurrection, he is also talking about the judgment of the just and the unjust. And what I would want to put here in this terminology in my little outline here is not just in the hope and the resurrection, but the hope in the judgment of God. Now that's not something that's commonly what we would want to put as a hopeful thing. If I told you all earlier this morning, I was like, oh, I'm so excited today about the sermon. I'm going to give you all some hope about the coming judgment of God. That isn't just normally what we would hear and understand in modern evangelicalism. But I want to tell you that it is so essential to our understanding of the hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we also hope in the judgment of God. Now, we get to hope in the judgment of God because we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But also, we want God to be a just God because during these times of suffering, we're going to see a lot of injustice. And it's going to be very difficult for us to understand how can so much injustice occur? How can Satan get away from all of the lies and deceit? How can wicked people who are hardened in heart get away with so much deception and death and destruction? Well, they're not getting away from it because there is a final judgment. And he was presenting that to Felix People say, well, maybe he's using you know, hellfire and brimstone before Felix. Yes, and it's for because he loved Felix to present that coming judgment so that they, he may hope in something else other than his own hopes of who he is. I want to take a moment to highlight, it's been about um, uh, four years now, 
when the proclamation that the Chinese church gave to the Chinese government in 2018, after some things that happened in February of 2018 by the Chinese government to crack down on the Christian church in China, they put out this declaration to the Chinese government. And in point three of their declaration, I want to read this for you. It says, Christian churches in China are willing to obey authorities in China whom God has appointed and to respect the government's authority to govern society and human conduct. I wanted to highlight that because there is a parallel here. We see Paul respecting Felix, but he's not doing it in the way that Tertullius did. He's not putting all of this saccharine sweetness of fakeness. He just simply says, because you've been a ruler of these people for so long, I can come to you cheerfully in my defense, defending myself. He realizes that there is an authority here. He grants him that respect, saying, you are one who judges this nation. And he's even kind of saying, and because you've been doing it for so long, you understand how they are. Here, the Chinese, in their response to the Chinese government, they say that they are willing to obey the authorities in China whom God has appointed and to respect the government's authority to govern society and human conduct. But then they go further. We believe and are obligated to teach all believers in the church that the authority of the government is from God, that as long as the government does not overlap the boundaries of secular power laid out in the Bible and does not interfere or violate anything related to faith or the soul, Christians are obligated to respect the authorities, to pray fervently for their benefit, and to pray earnestly for the Chinese society. For the sake of the gospel, we are willing to suffer all external losses brought about by unfair law enforcement. Out of love for our fellow citizens, we're willing to give up all of our earthly rights. There's a lot being said there, but they're saying, yes, we are called to respect and to obey. We see Paul, who is willing to respect and obey the legal laws of the land of that time. He's doing it consistently over and over again. There is a particular temperament and posture of Paul standing before the government. But because he is also holding to and believing in all the law and the prophets, he understands that that particular authority is limited. But at the same time, they're recognizing in this particular statement that they are expecting to receive suffering at the hands of the ones that have this authority. And we see Paul time and time again proclaiming that he actually rejoices in suffering because he knows and he sees that parallel with Jesus Christ because it is there where the gospel is going to be proclaimed. It's interesting when we read what the Chinese says, is for the sake of the gospel, we are willing to suffer all external losses brought about by unfair law enforcement. Out of the love for our fellow citizens, we are willing to give up all of our earthly rights. This is so foreign to us to understand, especially when we are faced with the politics of this day. We only look at our relationship with the politics of this day as that they are a stupid adversary that should be shamed and be mocked at. Paul is not mocking Felix. 
surely he has heard about Felix. He could have used a lot of opportunities to tell Felix in front of everybody the things that he should have done differently and to highlight how stupid Felix may have been. But he shows him respect. Why? Because he is in a place where he is able to present the gospel. So he is willing to suffer his imprisonment in this false trial against him so that he might be able, out of love, to display the gospel to these people. We understand by the scriptures, we even see in in the book of Acts in chapter 5, where Peter responds that we must obey God rather than men. But what is Peter talking about when he is willing to defy man and obey God? In that particular context in chapter 5, what did Peter keep doing that he was told not to do? Preaching the gospel. Now, there's a lot of things that we're willing to get upset about and to rile about, but how many people are truly that in today in our Western American evangelical state? Are we really that focused on getting out the gospel? How many opportunities do we have now, even still, as it's being eroded away, do Americans really fight hard to present the gospel? And then do we even get a clue when we hear people like Richard Dawkins and these other atheists, they're wanting you not to go after your children with the gospel. And here we, in our states and in our nation, we are free to present the gospel to our children. That is not totally so in China. Later, I'll read more of their declaration. They are sober to the reality that's a parallel. When you get through with the book of Acts and you go back and reread that declaration, they're very familiar with the nature of the kingdom that is being displayed in the book of Acts because they're very much involved in that right now with their Chinese government. I believe we're beginning to see that occur more and more here. And it may actually be a blessing for us that we would be able to see that vividness. But while we have the freedoms that we have now, we must be about the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them when they were trying to trip Jesus up about respect toward civil authorities, says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness is inscription, in inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The perfect answer that Jesus gave to the Pharisees blew their minds because they understood revolt and refusal of the government. And they understood what it would be to give in to the government, but to be able to look at this perfect balance of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And then we're here in this particular story and we see Paul trying to follow that same balance of giving Felix only what belongs to him. What did he not give to Felix that Tertullius did? He didn't give him praise. He didn't attribute peace toward Felix. He didn't attribute providence toward Felix. He only 
gave him what was his, that he is the rightful judge at that time over that nation, even if it was by force. He gave only what belonged to Caesar and continued to give to God what belonged to God and acknowledged that it was of the way that he was of the way and that Jesus is the way and that his ultimate hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He kept proclaiming the gospel. And so as we go through this, we see that he did have later on an opportunity to take everything that he said to them there concerning how he worships God the Father, how he is one who believes in the law and the prophets. He is one that has a hope in the resurrection and the judgment that will come upon the just and the unjust. And that he has this this adherence to the law of God by maintaining a clear conscience toward God and man. And how he gives of his self, I mean, of, of himself to his people through the alms to his nation and offerings. And he respects and has this temperament of posture by even being purified in the temple and not causing any kind of disputing or stirring up of a crowd. But that ultimately all of this was wrapped up. In his desire to present the gospel, he takes that and he is having a conversation with Felix and Drusilla. And he hones in on three things. He hones in on the righteousness of God. He hones in on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the unrighteousness of surely Felix and Drusilla. Alethea was reading something about Drusilla recently, and she was a pretty vile woman from what we can understand from what history said. You know, people could say, well, Felix was bad because he took Drusilla away from her husband, her former husband. Well, she was all for that from what we understand. And even though she was a Jew, she was not one who was kind toward the Jews. She was very much caught up in the same kind of ways that Felix was a part of. These were two very wicked people, and Paul had an audience with them that captivated them to some degree to keep getting their repeat visits. And what was he talking about? Was he talking about how God can make their lives better? How God can make them happier in their life? Look at what he was teaching them. He was teaching them about the righteousness of God. He was teaching them about having self-control. He was applying the law of God before them. And then he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ by talking about the judgment that is to come. And that surely was the place where he presented the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. He applied the upcoming judgment by saying that Jesus is not dead. He is king. And everything you're doing, you're not going to get away with. What could he have said better to Felix and Drusilla to help present the gospel? Would it have been better that he sugarcoated and that he hold back the truth about their sin, about their adultery, and about their destructive and violent lives? No, it seems that when he had the right context, He gave them the truth, and it compelled them, but maybe not enough. We have no evidence that Felix ever came to repentance and faith. We have no real hope that anything changed there. And you see that he was even thinking, after maybe Paul talked about bringing his alms and his gifts 
He probably thought that Paul had access to money, so he was hoping for a bribe. And then you can see that he was still about his pandering to the Jewish people by keeping Paul in prison for a couple more years. But we see in chapter 25, and this will be the point of the sermon next week, is that it is good that Paul is still in prison. Because we remember that Jesus told Paul that you're going to Rome that you're going to present the gospel to Rome. If Felix would have let Paul go, what do you think would have happened possibly to Paul? Those people that have been hungry for a very long time might get their hands on him. He would probably have died. Now, Paul probably got that. He makes it kind of clear in chapter 25. But do we get that? Do we get that, that when we are held captive by something outside of our control, from being able to have the freedom to move forward, do we see that Jesus is using that to bring about his gospel? Paul saw that. This particular passage that we have by the written hand of Luke teaches us that this is the nature of the kingdom. And it should be hopeful to us that if we are humbly in obedience to him, That even when we are restrained from being able to move at the pace that we would think that God wants us to move at, that it is that that is actually what is propelling us to furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close for you with this pretty good-sized paragraph, and it's it's not a real good way to close, I have to admit, but I think that if you can listen to these words of the introduction to the Declaration of the Chinese, I think you would agree with me that the Chinese church gets it. And I hope and pray that you will bring the same hope to your own hearts as you face your own trials in seeking to be long-suffering in your obedience that Christ is reigning faithfully even when it doesn't look like it. The Chinese get it, and I think we are going to get it more and more as his church. I think our nation of Christians here, maybe not in this generation, but in generations to come, it seems very apparent that they will be in this same boat. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the one true and living triune God is the creator of the universe, of the world and of all people. All men should worship God and not any man or thing. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that all men from national leaders to beggars and prisoners, have sinned. They will die once and then be judged in righteousness. Apart from the grace and redemption of God, all men will eternally perish. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the crucified and risen Jesus is the only head of the global church, the sole savior of all mankind, and the everlasting ruler and supreme judge of the universe. To all who repent and believe in him, God will give eternal life and eternal kingdom. On September 2017, the state council issued the new regulations on administration of religious affairs and began implementing these regulations in February of 2018. Ever since then, Christian churches across China have suffered varying degrees of persecution, contempt, and misunderstanding from the government departments during public worship 
and religious practices, including various administrative measures that attempt to alter and distort the Christian faith. Some of these violent actions are unprecedented since the end of the Cultural Revolution. These include demolishing crosses on church buildings, violently removing expressions of faith like crosses and couplets hanging on Christian homes, forcing and threatening churches to join religious organizations controlled by the government, forcing churches to hang the national flag or sing secular songs praising the state and political parties, banning the children of Christians from entering churches and receiving religious education and depriving churches and believers of the right to gather freely. We believe that these unjust actions are an abuse of government power and have led to serious conflicts between political and religious parties in the Chinese society. These actions infringe on the human freedoms of religion and conscience and violate the universal rule of law. We are obligated to announce bad news to the authorities and to all society that God hates all attempts to suppress human souls and all acts of persecution against the Christian church. And he will condemn and judge them with righteous judgment. But we are even more obligated to proclaim good news to the authorities and to all society, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior and King of mankind, in order to save us sinners, was killed, was buried, and rose from the dead by the power of God, destroying the power of sin and death. In his love and compassion, God has prepared forgiveness and salvation for all who are willing to believe in Jesus, including Chinese people, at any time, anyone can repent from sin, turn to Christ, fear God, obtain eternal life, and bring great blessing from God upon his family and country. For the sake of faith and conscience, for the spiritual benefits of the authorities in China and of society as a whole, and ultimately for the glory, holiness, and righteousness of God, we make the following declaration to the Chinese government into all of society. Here we have in this a clear and vivid understanding. They have a very first-hand knowledge of the very things that we see in the book of Acts. We see the very continual nature of what Satan attacks. And even today, we are seeing those things beginning to be placed upon us. But there's still a long way to go because here they were talking about how The government is forcing churches to hang the national flag in their churches. Go down any church, anywhere around here, and I bet you at least 85% of the church buildings in this city has the American flag. And if they have them flying outside, I bet you that the American flag is always on top over the Christian flag. The government doesn't need to persecute us. Being concerned about having secular songs in their church. My friend Damon sent me a video of a church singing Rocky Top last Sunday. (laughs) In praise of UT's victory over Alabama. (laughs) On Sunday morning. The persecution may be further away than we might think because there's nothing to persecute. When people are submitting their children to falsehood continually in every 
education institution that is around us. Though that may be a discouraging way to end, it is important for us to understand that these are attributes and characteristics of the enemy, whether we've already submitted to them and we can recognize them maybe in repentance, or we may get ready for them as it comes. We see that the bad news is, and the hopefulness is, that judgment will come to all who attempt to suppress the kingdom of God. And that is good news to hear that because then it is that we can even more so be obligated to proclaim the good news that anyone could repent at any time and turn to Christ, fear God, and obtain eternal life. And when they say bring great blessing from God upon his family and country, you know, even seeing that and thinking that today, I I know it is so manipulated today. They're not thinking about that they're going to have greater financial success and prosperity. They understand that they're going to get the blessing of God upon their home. That the goodness that is for a thousand generations will be instilled upon their home, and that if the whole country repents and turns to God, then they also will receive blessing. And you know what's really crazy? They really hope in that. They really hope in that for China. They actually believe, and I think that China's probably a lot closer to repentance and faith than we are. We will take their lead, I pray in the completion of the kingdom of God, and all will fall upon their knees. Let us pray.